School's out for summer. Yeah, great. It's another edition of Lockdown Football. Will Downing with you, joined by my fellow commentators Mark Rodden, Stefan Johnny, and Dimitro Zulai. An exciting breaking news, Stefan. You've been doing something different this week. Yeah, I made some bread and very proud of myself. Typical French baguette. Very crispy bread in the morning and the afternoon. So, you know, maybe I should open a bakery. Who's going to top up, you know, my French uh, baguettes now? Jürgen Klinsmann came from a family of bakers. Maybe you could do an interview with him about it. I'll tell you what. Absolutely impressed about the quality of my baguettes, I have to say. Maybe I should send a, a photo the next time. Yes, that'll work very well in a podcast, Stefan, I think you'll find. But potentially you'll be the best footballing baker since Desi. Well, we'll have a lot later on the decision to end the season in France and league on with Paris Saint-Germain declared champions. Also look back at France, Brazil and that classic 1986 World Cup quarterfinal. Plus how Marwan Fellaini is helping out his old club Standard Liège in tough times. But a couple of brief news items which have been happening this midweek. Uh, the Premier League are having a meeting next Friday of their project restart. There have been very few details that they have announced themselves, but various stories have been appearing in the past week or so. And it looks like in order to conclude this season in England, there will be 10 neutral venues needed for games to be played behind closed doors and potentially next season, 20 neutral venues, which would mean that stadiums would not be used perhaps before Christmas. But uh, Demetra, it's interesting in a way that, you know, the likes of Germany, Austria, Portugal, who have been the better nations, if you like, in handling the coronavirus crisis, they are due to resume in May. England, Britain, among the worst countries around and how they've handled it. And I think every vantage point bears that out. But they're looking to come back perhaps in a month's time. Well, maybe that's precisely why they want to be back. Don't you think so? Because I think this week, the best thing anyone can read about Premier League is an interview that John Nicholson did with an anonymous Premier League footballer. And it's fantastic. You just read what the player says and you realise that there are some people who have a lot of common sense in the world of football, but apparently they're not running the leagues, especially governments. And also, I think Frank Lampard was this week talking to BT Sports, and he said, it doesn't sit right with me if they were to do tests for footballers and not to those who work on the front line. So then again, we have someone who shows straight away you know, what he thinks and how he thinks about it, and then no one is going to listen, as I understand, because apparently they want to be back on the pitch as soon as possible to show that, oh, yeah, we've handled it. But I don't think it is the case. And when we're talking about 10 neutral grounds, okay, what are they? Can you name those 10 grounds? Like, just, how, how are you going to pick them? And the whole process is still mystery. So it's interesting how that anonymous player points out that he thinks they will be back in September and the stadiums will be also full. It's a topic which has come up as well with the Copa del Rey final in Spain as both Athletic Bilbao and Real Sociedad have both jointly asked the Spanish Football Federation to play the final with fans in the stadium. And that would mean essentially bumping the 2020 Copa del Rey final to 2021. Well, if that's the case, then fine. They can even play it in 2021. Why not? Because if they want to play, because again, we're talking here about the most friendly rivalry in Spanish football, probably. Atletic Bilbao, Real Sociedad. You, you go with your mates, you go with your family, you can support Atletic, you can support Real Sociedad, you even sit or stand together during the game. So, from that point of view, it is totally understandable why they do it together. Another thing is how. Federation will react how they will proceed with that because there is this feud between Federation and La Liga, personal, let's say, between Luis Rubiales and Javier Tevas. And sometimes it seems that whatever one guy says or does, 
another should do something else that he thinks will be better. And it doesn't look good from the outside. So in this particular situation, at least we have two clubs proposing something sensible. And obviously, again, considering the situation in Spain with the virus, it is highly unlikely it might happen during the summer. It may not happen in September, October. So maybe we're talking about November or December. But if clubs are happy to wait, then why not? And really play that final between those two great clubs in front of the full stadium. Now, the League One season is over in France. Ligue 1, Paris Saint-Germain have been declared champions, but they still had 11 games remaining. Marseille, the runners-up, will play in the Champions League group stage alongside them, and Rennes will play in the Champions League qualifiers. Lille are through to the group stage of the Europa League. It's still open as to whether the season's two cup finals, including the last ever League Cup final, will be played when the curtains come back up in September. Nice are fifth, Reims are sixth. They would play in the Europa League if the cup finals aren't played. Amiens and Toulouse are the teams who would go down. That's if it all happens, Mark, because Lyon in seventh might have been a European side as well, and they are one of a number of clubs threatening legal action. Yeah, it's hard to uh, feel much sympathy for a team that uh, went eight games without a win at the start of the season. Leon, if they don't qualify for Europe, might uh, look back on that as the reason rather than uh, feeling hard done by. But Jean-Michel Olas, their uh, president, is um, combative at the best of times and um, will be seeking millions in damages if um, there isn't a chance uh, for Leon to um, get into Europe. Uh, they've been involved in continental competition in each of the last 20 seasons, I think. And Olas was pointing out that, you know, some of the teams ahead have played more home games, had played uh, PSG, the uh, league leaders, defending champions, only once, while Lyon had played them twice. But the uh, French Football Federation president, Noël Legret, came out and said that, you know, I think Olas will, uh, will realise fairly quickly, um, you know, what the situation is like and... He pointed out as well they're still in the Champions League, so they uh, still have a chance of uh, qualifying for Europe that way if and when uh, the Champions League resumes as well. It's very confusing, um, to be honest with you. The announcement was made by the Prime Minister, Edouard Philippe, on Tuesday that professionally we'll, uh, we'll just stop for the season 2019 and 20 and, um, and straight or after that, Noel Logreit, who is not in charge of the uh, professional league, you have to remember that, you know, decided to go on, uh, you know, to go and, uh, and make a statement saying, "That's it. I just put the plug, and uh, that's what I'm going to uh, to work for the uh, for the end of the season." And uh, uh, Didier Kio, who's also the um, the managing director for the uh, French professional league, well, it took him a while to come out and and explain exactly what well, what you know will happen. There's a, um, a general assembly taking place, you know, this week to make the final decision about. Looking at the uh, week 28 as a final call of point for the uh, champions and uh, and decided the uh, and the pick for the uh, Champions League places and Europa League places, that created like a lot of uh, resentment from different presidents, but also for relegation because uh, Amiens wants to go to court, Toulouse looking at to go to court as well, um, and as Mark explained, Lyon felt you know a bit hard done because they play Paris twice. Uh, they play more games away from home, as Mark mentioned. And but Jean-Michel Olas, it's a it's a huge loss financially for for the club not to be able to compete for uh, uh, Europe next season. I know he mentioned we we're still able to win the Champions League, which you know we all know that's going to be very very unlikely. So he's straightening the uh, professional league to climb uh, millions. That's what he wants to uh, cover. Is potential loss in the future. Uh, I think it's far, far from over. But I, I will summarize it as confusion between the French Federation and the uh, French Professional League heads. Uh, you have Nathalie de Boilatour and Didier Kio. They, they were very quiet, and you can feel like Noel Gret is really the boss of French football at the minute, and he made the call, and people will have to follow. It's a stress decision because. The LFP, 
they have just a dotted line to the French Federation and the LFP is the only one who can make the call and decision about um, stopping the league. Having said that, they're still able to play football behind closed doors and with less than 5,000 people at the game. And Jean-Michel Olas still doesn't understand why it was a rush decision being made following Edouard Philippe, the French Prime Minister, on Tuesday. They say we should have hold, you know, a little bit more and reassess it maybe in three or four weeks' time. Again, far, 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 far from over. What I found really funny was uh, the reaction of Toulouse when it was first announced. Uh, the Toulouse president, Olivier Sadon, said, um, football's the winner, we shouldn't be going back. Um, and then it was fairly swiftly announced after that that league positions would be as they are, the season wouldn't be voided, Toulouse, bottom of the table, would uh, be relegated and he said you know this is really unfair we're going to contest this but at the same time you look at Toulouse 28 games played 21 defeats three wins 13 points 17 points off safety with uh, 10 games to go it's a bit rich coming from them uh, Amiens as well the other team that are relegated um, it shows how you know controversial a decision this is as well all the politicians in the city are getting involved as well and, uh, you know, helping out in, in the legal battle because obviously losing a Ligue 1 club is uh, going to have a huge economic impact as well on uh, the city. Yeah, we'll go back to the economic impact. Um, just, you know, going back to uh, Jean-Michel Alaz, he was absolutely uh, furious and enraged, but but also he's, he's desperate desperate to get back to Europe, desperate, you know, to financially get uh, something back for from the league and also for the uh, TV money. And it's going to be uh, very challenging to negotiate on that. But uh, Noel Legaid made a statement, you know, recently, I think it was yesterday, saying that uh, basically Jean-Michel S will have to calm down. Otherwise, you know, he's going absolutely nowhere. So, as I say, Noel Legaid is really driving uh, French football at the minute. And uh, but going back as well for the uh, relegation battle, yeah, Toulouse and Amiens, you know, intend to go to court. But also Nîmes, who's in a playoff position to, for the relegation, won't play any games. So Nîmes was safe. So that created again a bit of confusion among uh, uh, different, uh, you know, the president, especially for Amiens, who's still mathematically um, in the run uh, to to stay up. And uh, in league two, Lorient and Lens will go up again. There will be no relegation in League Two, the equivalent of the championship in England, which you know is a big announcement because I felt those clubs will suffer financially. And in the third division, Paul and Dunkirk, uh, those clubs used to play in the second division a long, long time ago. And they will they will be promoted. So the League Two uh, next season will have an extra two clubs, uh, exceptionally for the season 2020-21. But exceptionally, you know, circumstances, but uh, it's, uh, and again, you know, as mentioned, Will, initially you have the French Cup and the League Cup, if they want to take place, people don't understand, it's part of the season, that should, you know, definitely not be played, and uh, they're still pushing for that, but as you know, the uh, French Cup is under the French Federation with Noël Legrette, and the League Cup belongs to the um, LFP, and this is the last season, because they decided not to renew that competition for the next year. Yeah, I mean, you can have some sympathy in a way with uh, the likes of Lyon. They're only one point behind Reims and Nice in the table and those European places. But uh, again, to me, you can argue about um, whether the season should have been called off or not or whether they called it too soon. But it seems a fair enough way if there's 28 games played just to call it. Because, uh, you know, if you are going to call the season one way or another, you know, 28 games have been played. It's a good chunk of the season. Um, you can pick and choose about, you know, whether a team's played PSG twice or not, but that's just the look of the draw. Again, you know, I, I think a Hearts are bottom of the table in Scotland and, you know, getting very nervous about the same thing happening there. But a couple of weeks before, or I think a week before the lockdown happened, they played St Mirren, the team just above them, and they lost on the pitch, you know, so... Uh, from the authorities' point of view, I can see their argument that at least this is a way of uh, saying, you know, look, the music stopped, everyone's in a certain chair, 
things have been decided on the pitch. Yes, maybe it's a little bit harsh on some teams, um, the way the fixtures have fallen. But, you know, Lyon have won 11 out of 28 games in uh, Ligue 1 this season. And that's the reason they're seventh in the table. Yeah, but still, you know, Mark, I still think it's very unfair. I, I understand your point, but, you know, the season is 38 games. And we were talking about Michael Robinson. He was once asked to explain why football is so attractive. And he said, you know, in the movies, from the start, you more or less know who's the good guy, who's the bad guy who's going to marry the girl. In football, you don't know who's going to marry the girl until the last minute sometimes. And of course we can say PHC will be champions. Well, obvious, yeah. But to lose, right, they're rock bottom. But they had, a few seasons ago, this fantastic escape under Pascal Duprat, he was. Right, yep, so right. they were down, they, they were out, they were in the second division, they still stayed up. So we do not know, that's the point. And Stefan mentioned League 2. Okay, Lorient, Lens, but Lorient on 54, Lens on 53, then we had Ajaxio, 52, Troyes, 51, and Clermont, 50. So these clubs can say, but what about us? We are not that far away from uh, promotion sports. So, yeah, Stefan said also it came from the prime minister. The first call was from the prime minister and, of course, the government. They, they have to think about the safety of the people, and they did that. But, again, I still don't understand why you have to call it off if you return in september okay play in september play in october but play 38 games i also understand that you have contracts with the sponsors and television and stuff but you will play those games later but it's an exceptional situation and what i see in so many countries it's not about governments it's probably more about football federations leagues and their sponsors is that they are just not capable to sit down and talk properly about it and say, okay, we can finish it. We can, even if in December we're playing the 38th game, we can finish the season. And meanwhile, we can also sit down and think what we can do with the next season. But unfortunately, it's not happening. So for me, that would be the most fair way to finish the season. But, well, of course, that's not how it is. To be honest, I think they did call it too early, but it is an unprecedented situation, and you have so you have so many factors involved. You have, you know, UEFA and their competitions. They want teams qualifying, and they want to have a normal season next time. You have a new TV deal kicking in, a new uh, company in charge of that, and then if you do continue, you won't have the same uh, season because they'll be playing behind closed doors. So a team that plays PSG away is not having the same, uh, you know, it's, it's not as big a challenge. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's the, 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 the league will have changed completely. 28, 28 games in the last 10 will be completely different because you'll have behind closed doors. It's not the same, but yeah, first of all, we are not guaranteed a new season from August or September. Nobody knows that nobody can tell. Okay. We are starting a new season. UEFA, well, UEFA has become a mafia a long time ago. They don't really care about clubs in so many countries. They only care about the money they're getting in. So, of course, they want to play the Champions League group stage, an absolutely insignificant tournament for so many. No, they want to, to start it, I don't know, in October. So that's why they would probably even accept what happened in the Netherlands and they would accept what happened in France. But they should be the first to say, okay, that's an unprecedented situation. That's an exceptional situation. So we all have to find a way out of it. But they are not going to do it. They don't want to. They just talk about sponsors again. Who cares about that now? But I think, I think you know, the overall picture in France, it was definitely confusion. Uh, the presidents never had the, the, the same, uh, never walked on this specific project or scenarios provided you know to the LFP to the uh, French government there was not a clear voice from uh, the professional organization to say look we're prepared to uh, to start on that day we have scenario one two and three like the Germans for example or maybe you know the Spanish and that was you know the problem there were so many voices from different presidents where we should go back and providing different you know type of ideas but there was not a conveyor belt of one or two three ideas conducted by the LFP coming from the presidents. 
And that was a problem. And it seems the players were not inclined as well to, to play uh, and to start again the league. And that, I think the conjunction of events made, you know, so easy for the uh, French government because you have to bear in mind, Macron made two phone calls before the Tuesday statement from uh, the, uh, the French prime minister. He called Noël Le Gret, the French Federation president. He's not in charge of the LFP. So I was strange call. But also he called Didier Deschamps which is, you know, <laughs> unbelievable. He made those two phone calls, Didier Deschamps and Noël Le Graet. So it's strange. And from the feedback, and obviously from the uh, medical chief officer, made a final call about uh, the uh, French Professional League. And uh, it's sad. I think it's a rush decision. We, we wait, you know, what was the problem to, uh, to delay by months? Nothing, really. Uh, and Mark mentioned that uh, the new uh, TV right holder next season makes sense as well, because negotiating with the government, having a clear message uh, from the LFP to the prime minister and the government would have made things, you know, I think easier uh, to delay uh, that, uh, that uh, the league another month and maybe potentially starting back again in, uh, by the end of May. And you have to keep in mind, Minister of Sports, specifically said it is possible to plan behind closed doors with less than 5,000 people, which... Add, you know, even more confusion now. I think definitely, Dimitra, we probably share the same opinion that next season may not happen. It could be even more curtailed than this one. And it just seems strange. I'm. We've said this before a number of weeks. Why would you sacrifice this season, the climax on the way, we're in the final couple of months, when next season may not be a thing. It may not happen. Why not cancel next season instead of this? Well, I, I, I can tell you why, because in some countries we have presidents who are saying the footballers are not actually at risk of getting the virus, so why don't they play? That's Brazil. We have another president who advises people to drink bleach to get rid of coronavirus, and it's just stupidity all over the world. It's not unique to one country or another. So why do you expect it to be any different? And they're looking at to come back next season on the 22nd and 23rd of August for the uh, League 1 and League 2 in France. That's the target so far. And beyond closed doors, obviously. Uh, I just want to, uh, to go back to uh, one important thing for French football. TV rights is huge for all the French clubs. And uh, something was quite interesting as well. On Tuesday, following, again, the... Uh, statement for the French Prime Minister, Canal Plus, called and made, you know, um, they had a meeting, I think, on a call with the um, LFP and decided to sign an addendum straight away about if if the, the league was uh, shutting down, was closing, they were not obliged to pay, there were no obligation from Canal Plus or being Sport to make any payments for the remaining uh, of the season. It means, you know, if the league is cancelled, there's no payment, no further payment will be made by Canal Plus and being in sports. So it means there's a huge void and a huge loss for French football of, you know, 240 million. It's huge, huge. So it's a huge loss, you know, lo huge loss for every club in League 1 and League 2. And uh, how they're going to survive it, they will have to find a different leverage with the LFP, they're looking at maybe going to the market to look into bonds, to invest into clubs. So it's more debt for the clubs, technically speaking, uh, because we're talking maybe some survival for some the uh, League One, the League Two clubs as well. So it's going to be very, very, very challenging. And uh, but Canal Plus has been very, very uh, quick uh, to uh, uh, to preempt the closure and to avoid any uh, financial commitments on their side. Two hundred forty million. They pay thirty-seven million. Uh, for the, the games being played and the last tranche or one the, the tranche they had to pay was being sport but that's it it's over the TV rights are changing in France next season they've been with Canal Plus and BN Sports for the last eight seasons or thereabouts since BN Sports entered the French market Media Pro who are the global sports distribution company they are launching a channel next season it was originally due to launch at the end of July for the start of the league this season they're taking over the rights from the next campaign. And they had actually originally offered earlier in the week that with Canal Plus and BN Sports pulling out, that if the season was going to continue, that they'd be happy to broadcast it. That's obviously not going to happen now at all. But in case of the, the Bundesliga want to continue, they want the season to finish. England wants the season to finish. Belgium still to be decided. The final decision has been knocked back. 
three or four weeks at this stage, does it not look just a bit rash if other leagues get to conclude this season that they crown a champion on the pitch, that France would have just gone too early? Well, the thing is, well, there was a Montpellier player really, really sick in hospital just a week or two ago. And on Friday night, we get the news from Cologne that three uh, members of the club have tested positive. And by the way, they were asymptomatic. They showed no symptoms when they tested positive for coronavirus. And on Wednesday, the German uh, government are going to decide whether the Bundesliga can restart. They're looking at May 16th or, or May 23rd for the restart. I agree with Stefan. The big difference is in Germany, they had a plan. This was huge for them that they wanted to um, you know, really sit down and try and thrash out a solution that would allow the league to resume. And that seems to be something that was never really considered in France all that much. Yeah, there's no, I mean, if again, from the outside, there's no feeling or a sense that of regular communication and clear communication from the LFP and the French, you know, the president of the clubs in France that that's the scenarios we want to be and, and, and communicating clearly with the French government. I don't think, you know, they, they, it was happening really like, and compared to Germany where we know exactly where they want to go, even though they're prepared to delay by a week or two the uh, the start of the season, the season, and uh, and to finish the season, and uh, so that 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 makes a big difference. If you have clear signal from uh, uh, the uh, football organization, you know exactly where to go, and you have an understanding with the government and and the authorities. Uh, what's the next step, really? And uh, and you work together. And I don't think that was happening in France. But something I want to add as well about the uh, non-professional leagues. That's an interesting one. Noel Legray, the French Federation, uh, is in charge of the uh, non-professional league in France. So you're talking about the uh, fourth tier of football downwards. And basically, it's it's a strange one. You could have a team finishing top of the uh, the league and gaining promotion. But if they had played less games than you know the team with second, the second team gets promoted. And that created a lot of lot of problems among those uh, small clubs who clearly have, have a budget. Some players are getting paid as well. And uh, and he seems he seems and he appears and it's not even that that the Sunder clubs will go to court as well. Uh, to the Olympic Committee to uh, contest and uh, and dispute the decision made by Noel Legrade. It was a rush decision, and but uh, it's some clubs could disappear as well. And uh, some of the parents I'm talking about, you know, the basic stuff going to the academy for the kids might claim back some of the money, and uh, and the clubs survives on the uh, subscription for the parents. And uh, so French football has been uh, hit, you know, severely, not at a professional level, but also the non-professional uh, clubs will suffer from it. Yeah, we're seeing that happening in quite a number of nations as well. And Locren, who were in the second flight of Belgium and who won the Belgian Cup twice in the past decade, they sadly have gone to the wall. Uh, Obviously, we always say the disclaimer is, we mention it week on week, that there ought not be any football until circumstances are safe. We are in a position now where it's pretty obvious there will be no spectator sports in Europe until 2021. A number of countries have already made that ruling. What scenario then, if it is not safe to play competitive top-level football in Europe until, let's say, let's say March next year? You can't start a season then, but you can certainly finish the current one. Yeah, I guess uh, for for if you look at the topic I and mean, the way you 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 mentioned that, will. Um... I think you know for France we know it's it's resolved, but uh, we have to wait for Spain, Italy, and England. Portugal probably will come back. Switzerland, Austria, Germany, but I think it will be on case case by case, and uh, it's up to the uh, UEFA and the the uh, local authorities for each country to make a, a decision if it's feasible to play beyond closed doors, if it's safe enough, if we have the test you know in place. If we can confirm the players, it's all about if, if, if. But uh, only time can tell. And it's probably uh, as a good chance, you know, we we'll see football on TV for a while with no uh, spectators. In terms of other countries, uh, English Premier League clubs have been told that the only way that football can resume in June is through neutral venues and would be behind closed doors. The Bundesliga looking to resume in the next two weeks. 
They've knocked a decision back until the 10th of May. They were hoping to resume next weekend with those three Cologne staff members testing positive. It's now muddy the waters a little bit. Portugal is clear to resume the last weekend in May. That's the 30th of May. There is already a British and Irish TV deal there, so maybe we get to see some Portuguese football at the end of the month. Taiwan have got their fourth round of action this weekend. They are showing matches on YouTube in English. Tajikistan had kicked off. But then they suddenly had some new coronavirus cases there. So that league is now suspended. And next week, after a delay of two months, they will kick off in the Faroe Islands. And all those matches, the main three games, will be live on TV in Norway, on TV2. That's good news for everybody. Yeah, and also next week on Friday, John Book Mothers, Suwon Blue Wings, the first game of the K-League season and we have to say that in Korea Republic they handled the crisis uh, brilliantly and the government did everything and uh, it looks like yeah they are ready to play even though it's going to be yeah behind closed doors going back to the leagues decided to stop and uh, the Dutch league the players are back training Ajax uh, decided to bring back the players uh, due to comes the training center and they are training by a group of three players it's different pitch, and uh, so it's a strange situation. The, cl- the players are back training, you know, but the league is over. And we, 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 are we going to have, again, you know, projecting the future, are we going to have a kind of a cascading effect from the French league, the Dutch league, you know, stopping? We don't know about the Belgium as well, but could we see, like, based on the French league decision to stop seeing that the Spanish league, even though they're trying to, Put everything together, the German league and all the Italian leagues to decide. Look, it's not safe to play. I'm going to stop and follow the same uh, the same protocol than those two countries. Right, we can nip over to Paris and join one of the BN Sports commentators on Ligue 1 this season, Antoine Morin. Was it a bit of a surprise in the end that this happened? Yeah, for sure. It was um, a situation which uh, started to become so complicated because. There is no opportunity to have uh, a good agenda to schedule the rest of the season. So on his uh, speech uh, last uh, Tuesday, the prime minister says that the professional sports season will not restart. The league boards uh, decided to stop the season and to stop the, the ranking. So yeah, it's uh, Paris Saint-Germain champions for his ninth uh, title for the PSG. And in that relegation situation, there's a threat of legal action. Leon unhappy? Yeah, for the European, um, European qualifications, it's uh, quite complicated because the league and the French Federation uh, still hope they could play the two finals for the French Cup and the French League Cup, uh, maybe in August, before the beginning of the new season. If they could do that... It will depend on the results because it will be uh, Lyon-Paris Saint-Germain for the League Cup and Saint-Étienne-Paris Saint-Germain for the French Cup. So it could be Lyon and Saint-Étienne to go in the Europa League. But if they can't schedule this final, they have to give the European tickets to the 5th and the 6th of the French League, which are Reims and Nice. So it will be non-European season for Lyon next year and that's why President Olas is so upset. It's in complete contrast to the Netherlands where they've cancelled relegation for this season and nobody's been awarded the title Uh, but France going a different route. Yeah, because the league uh, follows the rules uh, the federation of all the championships keep the two relegations and the two promotions, by the way, for the uh, second division, which is more important for the French federations uh, to promote the teams which deserve it uh, by their performances in the in their division. At the beginning of the season, it's supposed to be to have some playoffs between the 18th of the French first division and the winner of the playoffs of the second division, but. This has been cancelled and it's only two promotions and two relegations. But yeah, Amiens and Toulouse uh, are the losers of this situation and they probably make an appeal to that decision. But they have very, very few chances to win this appeal because the appeal will only be based on supposition 
that they could get the points they need to be safe. But it's the problem and it's the basis of the sports. Nobody can predict if you will win or lose and get the points or not. So it probably will be very difficult to win in Apple Uh, against this decision. So you've commentated the entire season across the country for BN Sports. Is there a general feeling of disappointment among fans that they might have liked to have seen the season concluded or is there just an acceptance that this is the way it should be? By the way, for all the football lovers, it's a deception to have to cancel the season. But I think else is more important and I prefer that we stop the season We will prepare the next season and have a very good season in the best condition because I will not appreciate to have to command some games in empty stadiums because this is not the football we like. If it was the only way to finish the season, I prefer that um, we will stop it. We have to stop it and try to have the best conditions to start the new season with the public, with the fans, Uh, with the crowd in the stadium, maybe not full stadiums, but some people in the stadiums because it's part of the games. Yeah, the last Europa League game I did, Inter Milan against Ludogorets, that was played in front of uh, empty stands because the coronavirus was beginning to take hold in that part of Italy and it was due to do Inter's home game against Atafe, but that was cancelled 24 hours in advance. Have you ever done any games like that? Because they are quite peculiar to work on. Uh, not this season, but uh, 10 years ago, by the way, two or three um, games like that. And it wasn't very easy in the studio, by the way. When you are in the stadium, maybe it should be different. But when you are in the studio with just uh, the screen and your headphone, it's very, very hard to to be involved in the game. And, uh, and it's a very difficult exercise. You're also one of the main commentators on French women's football and some of the best clubs in the world. Lyon, Paris Saint-Germain at least come from France. Their season halted also. Yeah, because uh, the, the women's championship is earned by the French Federation. There is no uh, professional league for the moment. It's project to maybe have uh, a league provide the competition but for the moment it's uh, the federation and like all the others uh, championship that uh, the federation is in charge uh, they have been cancelled two weeks ago because it was the best way uh, it should have been so complicated uh, for the federation to reschedule all the games from all this championship and uh, by the way the French league it's um, only 12 clubs league so there is for the first time it was so closed at the head of the of the table between Lyon and Paris Saint-Germain so that's a little bit disappointed to not have the finish of this duel but by the way it was the best decision I guess in the men's league and you've covered most of the clubs this season was it a classic uh, the title race looked pretty much done Paris Saint-Germain were well clear again the only way that you could have um, a title fighting in France. It's, it depends on two conditions. You have to have low PSG and you need to have very strong opponents as Monaco has been uh, three years ago, for example, or Lyon a couple of years before. But this season, Marseille, which ending the season at the second place, uh, they have a very poor start. Too many gaps between uh, Paris Saint-Germain and the other team. So it was not the best uh, Ligue 1 season before the coronavirus crisis. The ranking, as it is, is a good view of what we have seen on the pitch. And it seemed apparent in England the entire time, and in Germany, maybe Spain as well, that the public does want to see the season conclude. Uh, what was the opinion in France before the cancellation? Yeah, for sure, because um, it's part of us. Um, We like to be concerned by uh, our football teams and football games and to play football, not only to watch football, but only to play football. Two weeks without uh, playing football with my friends uh, or my colleagues, it's it's very hard too because this is part of our life. And yeah, I, I think that most of the people in French 
uh, hopes that they could watch football, we missed it. By the way, most of us in the French media, we, we have this idea that the season will not restart because the only hope we had was uh, if the confinement uh, has been short. But since the first days, we have understood that it will be at least one month or two. Uh, after two months without training, the clubs will need probably three weeks or one month to do uh, physical preparation. So you have to push back again the start of the competition. So we have been very clear that there were less opportunity to restart the season and we were prepared to that decision. Thanks very, very much for that. Now, in terms of Belgium, Marwan Fellaini is set to lend his former club standard Liège 3 million euros to help them through the coronavirus crisis. He's now based in China with Shandong Luneng. His former club finding themselves in a little bit of administrative trouble, something we've covered in the past couple of weeks. Yeah, lending some money to the club. It's his boyhood club and uh, it's a nice gesture. We talk sometimes footballers are quite selfish. He's lending money. He's not giving the money, though. It's something it's quite important to say, but, but it's a nice gesture, though. Solidarity work, works in football as well. And Axel Witzel invested in the uh, Standard Stadium. I think he, he just become 40, 45% of uh, stakeholders of Maurice Dufran or the Sklesa, So, which is quite important. Those players haven't forgotten about Standard. Because they've been, at the moment, refused a top division licence for next season. Premiums hadn't been played to players. And they face being relegated, potentially, to the fourth flight to amateur football in Belgium, which for a club of their size would be extraordinary. Uh, it's inimaginable. I can't see uh, the Belgium league without Standard Liège in the professional sphere in Belgium. But presumably the three million could help uh, to sell the club, and especially to get a license. And uh, I really hope Standard Liège will compete in the Belgium League next season because it will be a huge void. And uh, to me, that's the most iconic club in, uh, in Belgium. Yeah, I, I, th- I think they'll be okay, to be honest. Um, the story goes that Axel Witzel actually was the guy who persuaded Fellaini to invest. Witzel had put in uh, a million and a half himself. He's from Liège, a uh, former player with the club as well. Probably has a lot of spare change after uh, playing in Russia for so many years. But um, 10th of May is the big date for um, Standard Liège when they'll find out what the uh, decision of the um, Belgian Court of Arbitration for Sport is on whether they can play in the top flight next, next season or not. Well, we always like to have a little bit of a nostalgia as well along the way. And we saw on BBC in the past few weeks highlights of that epic 1986 World Cup quarterfinal between France and Brazil. It went to penalties. It was a French victory in the end. Luis Fernandez struck the winning spot kick. But there was so much, Stefan, that happened in that game that had, had fallen from memory. It was an absolute epic, even though it finished one all after extra time. Yeah, absolutely, Will. It's, uh, it was entertaining, an epic game. Probably one of the two best teams at the time in the world with Argentina because we, you have to remember Diego Maradona was playing. It was at his peak as well. And um, it was a quarterfinal France in 1984, two years previous to the World Cup in Mexico, was crowned European champion, beating uh, Spain in the final 2 0. Platini scoring that famous free kick with Arconada, the goalkeeper from Spain, missing the ball uh, under his tummy. And then you had that second goal scored by Bruno Bellon. And uh, Brazil, uh, coming to that uh, uh, World Cup, won his last one in 1970, also in Mexico. So everything was set, you know, for a great game. And uh, if you remember some big players in that golden, you know, generation from Brazil, like from Zico, Socrates and Falcao, but also young players coming through like Branco and Julio Cesar at Carica, who later would have played for Napoli. And from France, Michel Platini was one of the biggest players at the time. And Manuel Amoros, the uh, call that Carré Magique, uh, the magical quarter, uh, or square if you want, and uh, with Tigana Gires, uh, Platini and Luis Fernandez. You have to bear in mind there was a lot of expectation from France because they won the European Championship, but also in 1982, they, they'd been knocked out by the West Germany on Penos in the in semi-finals and if you look at during that uh, that 1986 france that's um italy 2-0 and at the time there was like you know brazil 
comfortably like you know qualify for the uh, for that you know that game. But having said that, it was very hot on the day. It was in Guadalajara, and there's, I think about 60, 65,000 people at the game. When the kickoff was given, Brazil started very strongly and scored pretty quickly. Great goal scored by Carica after 17 minutes. France was really, really struggling. Uh, Socrates was unbelievable. He was uh, one of the maestros on the pitch. You have to be in mind the French side. Platini was injured. He, had, uh, he carried out an injury, an injury on his uh, Achilles. And uh, he was not on the best form. And uh, managed to equalize after 40 minutes uh, from a cross. Stopiar tried to head the ball. Unfortunately for Platini, the, uh, the cross came to the, the, the far post and the net was completely empty and pushed the ball in the, the back of the net and equalized. And uh, Zico starting on the bench after 17 minutes, well, to play the last 20 minutes. And uh, a penal was awarded to Brazil. And Zico decided to take it. And he should have been Socrates. But Zico took the ball and Joel Bats, the French goalkeeper, saved the penalty and uh, managed to go to extra times. And, uh, and then we had that crazy uh, penalty shootouts. It went to penalties after that, but tons more happened because if you remember, Bruno Bologna was through and was dragged down by the Brazilian keeper, Carlos, outside the area. Nothing happened. No free kick. No card even for Carlos. And then Brazil immediately broke down the other end. And Socrates missed an open goal. And remember, the both sides had hit the woodwork during that time as well. I think Muller had hit the post. France had hit the upright as well. It was an astonishing game even before you reached the penalty shootout. Yeah, it was, you know, again, you know, if you, for football lovers, it was like watching, you know, a movie, entertainment movie and action movie. There was chances after chances. It was going from one end to the other. It was quite breathtaking at times. And surely, technically, it was unbelievable. Some... Super players. I mean, if you look at now, you know, nowadays, those players will be definitely like uh, playing for the big clubs in Europe. There's not even a question about it. Something struck me as well when you look at, you know, the game. Sometimes the ball doesn't get up to the pitch, you know, for like five, even ten minutes. It just plays, continue plays. There's no like throw-ins or free kick. It was like, you know, kind of free football. It's, it's, it was a tremendous game. And, uh, and obviously the penalty shots, as I say, like was unbelievable because it was, if you remember, there was Michel Patini's birthday on the day. And he missed the penalties to qualify France for the semi-finals. And, uh, and in fact, the story goes that like, he missed it. And Luis Fernandez, uh, a guy who came from a suburb in Lyon, who took the penalty and qualified France for the semi-finals. But above, you know, the, the, the results and the qualification of France, it was the brand of and the style of play from both teams, attacking football uh, with some tremendous players with a lot of skills around the, the pitch. And that what struck me on, on the you know on the end that uh, that game between France and Brazil. Yeah, there was a really good interview with uh, Michel Platini. I was just reading back uh, in Le Monde a few years ago where he mentioned what Stefan was talking about there. That uh, you know one of the things that struck him afterwards was like the ball had not gone out of play in that game because it was two technically gifted teams that were at the peak of their powers, two very experienced teams as well. Another thing he mentioned was we didn't quite realize the magnitude of what we'd achieved and quite how good a game it was because we'd been away for two months. We didn't have French TV. There was no internet. And it wasn't until afterwards that we kind of realized, you know, wow, people really thought that was one of the uh, best games of all time. And another thing on Platini as well in that interview, he said that he was always the fifth penalty taker. But Luis Fernandez came to him and said, listen, when I take the fifth penalty... I always score and we always win. And that's exactly what happened. That's right, Mark. It's, it was amazing. And people have to remember, it was very, very hot. And that game was playing, you know, right tempo as well, but high altitude over, you know, 1,500 meters. So physically, it was very, very demanding to showcase that kind of game. But you also have to remember when fans starting uh, the, the World Cup, they have, a, you know, a rough patch. The first game was only win, only won 1-0 against Canada. And Jean-Pierre Papin, one of the famous strikers in France, who went to play for Marseille and Milan and Club Rouge, uh, scored the, um, uh, the only goal the that game. And it was a bit of a struggle because Henri Michel took over at the time uh, from uh, Michel Hidalgo, who went to win the uh, European Championship in 1984. So it was a bit of a, a new era as well. And uh, some people criticized the appointment of Henri Michel who was, you know, who won the Olympics uh, with the French uh, football team a few years before. In fact, for the French Federation, he was the natural appointments 
because he was also the assistant of Michel Hidalgo. Unfortunately for Brazil, that was that golden generation who never won the World Cup with Zico, Socrates, and uh, that, that was pretty uh, a sad story from a Brazilian perspective as well. But yeah, I mean, that team from 1982 particularly played amazing football. And generally, during a World Cup, there will be a team that will emerge that looks so good that you think they have to win it. And invariably, they don't. Germany have done that quite a bit the couple of tournaments before they eventually did win the World Cup in 2014. I think Brazil in... In 1982, especially incredible. The 86 side were very good. 90, not so much. But Brazil had obviously won their three group games. They'd edged out Spain 1-0 in that very tight opening game. If you remember, it was Socrates' penalty and that great Jimmy McGee commentary who will be mentioned a lot in an upcoming programme, which we already have in the can. It was that Socrates' penalty, that very short walk-up of maybe two steps before putting it in the net. Pretty much an epic game. I remember Andoni Zubizarreta pulling off an astonishing save, one of the best saves I've ever seen, where he pushed it on against the post. Maybe it was a long shot from Kareka or something like that. And then Brazil edged out Algeria in their second game. But they went to town in Northern Ireland in their final group game. They won that by three goals to nil. And it might sound very unusual to younger listeners, but the Republic of Ireland at the time didn't have... Perhaps the pieces of the jigsaw weren't quite in place. Qualifying campaign, own hand had been dispatched as boss, and it all came to an end away to the Soviet Union, losing 2-0 in the last away game, and then particularly at home, the last match in charge for own hand, losing 4-1 at home against a really tasty, useful Danish side, one of the best Danish sides that we'd ever had. I mean, as for France, sure, they edged out Canada 1-0, then it came good in the last group game against Hungary 3-0, but then in between they drew one all against the Soviet Union. If only we had somebody here who would have been a big fan of that team at the time, who could have tell us more about that game. Shall I? You. Well, um, I can tell you that the Soviet Union in that qualification campaign when we were in the same group with Ireland, Denmark, Switzerland... Uh, they weren't doing really well, but they managed to qualify, winning their last three games, I think. And there was a change of the manager right before the World Cup because Dinamo Kiev won the Cup Winners' Cup in '86, and the national team was struggling in the friendlies. So, particularly remember a draw against Finland at home. So they decided, okay, we're changing the manager. So basically, the team that won Cup Winners' Cup in '86 went to the World Cup to play as a national team with some additions, of course, from other clubs. The very first game was a 6-0 against Hungary. A very good side. I think they beat Brazil in 85 in a friendly 3-0. And then there was a game against France. France were European champions and people were afraid of them, of course. And that was a very good game. 1-1 draw. That was probably a just result, but of course, yeah, Soviet Union lost to Belgium in the round of 16, and that was it. But if we talk about France for Brazil, one of the things that I want to mention, when you watch that game again, you just realize just how good Socrates was. I mean, it's just amazing because he didn't care, and I mean in a good way, because sometimes when you play football, you, you think, okay, this pass is probably too risky. I'm not going to do that. And he did it every single time. Uh, it's, it's, it's amazing. And you have to remember Socrates uh, was also uh, very intellectual. Uh, you know, I think he was uh, uh, a doctor, you know, in, um, yeah, that's, and, yeah, and yeah, also yeah. studied a bit of philosophy. And uh, he was definitely a thinker of the game and uh, loved the life. I think he was a smoker as well. I mean, he's not, you know, the athlete you're looking at now. And uh, it was a different type of brand of player, as you said. That, and, uh, but, you know, what a magnificent player and, and uh, the way he was linking the game and uh, truly like a, a great play. And, uh, and for Brazil, now winning the World Cup was a, was a big blow for Socrates, who was a different type of, of, of guy if you look at the players nowadays. Like, and uh, he had a life outside football. And, you know, you look at the squad, if you look, if you look at you know the Brazilian squad and the French squad, it's it's in 1986. Most of the players were playing in their respective league in Brazil and France. Only Platini was playing in the, in, in Italy for Juve, but most of them were playing you know in Bordeaux or or you know Nantes and uh, or Marseille and, and so on. But if you look at Brazil, the same Botafogo, uh, Vasco da Gama, and 
And it's 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 funny your football has changed you know dramatically over the last you know decades. No, but the thing is about Socrates, you know, he would have the ball, he would try to play it through. Even though you could see, well, it's very difficult. It may not reach Kareka or Müller. He was still trying to do that. And another thing from that game is that both teams were actually trying to win the game by scoring goals, by scoring more goals than the opponents. Even though it's it's actually weird that it's ended 1-1 because they did have chances and Zico missed a penalty. Then he had a header that was saved by Joel Botts. And uh, Kareka hitting the post, you know. Yeah, the they, they, they had their chances and Will mentioned how Socrates missed an open goal. And of course, Bellon was... Uh, through one on one, and yeah. they did have other chances and shots, but it was about the attitude from both teams. You know, they were trying to attack, they were trying to keep the ball and build those attacks and score goals. Ironically, it was only two in the game, but still, the game itself was absolutely thrilling. And, and tactically as well, if you remember, I mean that's something we we uh, we uh, we discussed, you know, with three, uh, uh, you know, some football expert in France, you know, has been discussed before. But uh, tactically, uh, Henri Michel decided to play Luis Fernandez not in the middle park, but as a right back, because he wanted to counterattack Branco. Branco was going forward a lot, and there was one of the key things for you know the French side to stop Branco going forward. And Luis Fernandez decided, you know, well he was he was told like you're going to play right back for the first half, and then the. They looked at it and then changed it, you know, during the game. But that was, you know, one the uh, uh, the tactical change, you know, made by uh, Henri Michel. What struck me about it as well was there was just so many dramatic moments involving uh, so many of the big name players. So Platini said it was like a home game for Brazil. Um, it was all yellow. The heat was a factor as well. It was like playing Brazil in Brazil. He said. So Platini has his day where. It's his 31st birthday, he scores a goal with his weaker left foot. It was a tap-in, but he said he had so much time to think about it, he was worried about what to do and whether he'd managed to score that one. Then he had the chance to win the uh, tie for France with the fourth penalty. said he was going to go bottom right, ended up going high to the left. It's funny what pressure can do to you, I suppose. And then the other story... On the Brazilian side is both Socrates and Zico. Zico comes on. The full game, by the way, is on uh, YouTube as of about three weeks uh, ago. FIFA put it up. Highly recommend watching it. It's John Motson on commentary and Zico is injured. So he only comes on for the last 20 minutes. And Motson says, I've never heard an ovation like that for a substitute. He said, it's incredible. The noise that was made when Zico comes on. Two minutes later, he plays one of the best passes you'll ever see. Joel Bats, the uh, French goalkeeper, commits the foul and Zico takes the penalty. Misses that one but scores in the shootout. Bats had a, a great interview as well with Eurosport a few years ago and he said when it comes to a penalty shootout, if you're a taker you have one chance, if you're a goalkeeper you have five chances to be the hero. So he wasn't able to save Zico's in the shootout but that was a crucial penalty um, from Socrates and he said that I saw Socrates score against Poland in the last game, that 4-0 win. And he had a halting run-up and I said, I'm not going to go early and give him an easy chance. And so if you watch that penalty, he does make the decision late and he's, he, he gambles and says, Socrates is going to go the same way across into the corner and I'm going to save it with my top hand. And that's exactly what happened. And you have to remember as well that, you know, Socrates, Zico, Platini, they all missed, you know, the penalties, all of them. And they were, you know, the, some of the top players, you know, in the world at the time. And but I've said one of the man of the match was Jeffy Joel Bass, the French keeper. He made so many saves, especially in the first half, uh, to keep the French afloat. And uh, he has to be uh, bear in mind. Probably one of the best goalkeeper in France as well, Joel Bats. Uh, and uh, I think it's a pure produce from Sochaux, went to Auxerre and, uh, and also played for PSG, I think, if I'm not uh, mistaken. But it, it was incredible. If you look at, again, the saves he made in the first half, unbelievable, unbelievable. And if we talk about the other goalkeeper, Carlos, at the other end, again, right. again, Jonathan Wilson had a good piece on this where he interviewed him many years later. He was a really anxious character. He didn't really enjoy being a professional footballer, especially a goalkeeper for Brazil because there was so much pressure on him. He said he felt no guilt five minutes to go in a World Cup quarterfinal. Bruno Ballon just sent on in extra time, clean through. Carlos impedes him, but Ballon stands on his feet still tries to score referee doesn't give a free kick as will i think mentioned 
Brazil and Socrates really should have scored at the other end, which would have been one of the biggest scandals ever in a World Cup history. And even in the, the the shootout, there's so much to talk about because Milan then has his moments of redemption, but it was controversial because he hits the post, it comes back off Carlos and goes in. Should it have been allowed? Should it not? There was some controversy about it at the time. And then uh, Julio Cesar is the unfortunate one to uh, hammer a penalty off the woodwork for Brazil. Yeah, it's true enough about that penalty because I remember like the Ortiz panel at the time, Liam Tui was on it and they as happens a lot nowadays, but it was very rare at the time, they actually quoted the rule book. And the rule, as it was then, and I will be honest with you, I'm not actually sure if the rule has changed since then, but as soon as the ball hit the post and rebounded out without crossing the line, that should have been it, as the rule was in 1986. But it rebounded out. Carlos had dived and committed. Obviously, if it's a penalty in open play, that goes down as a Carlos' own goal. But there was uh, a little bit of doubt as to what should have happened then after it rebounded back out of the post, then of Carlos, and into the net. In terms of the shootout, that ought not have counted. But as we have seen in quite a few YouTube clips and clips that you've seen of Twitter, I think it was in Latin America, somewhere like that, where a goalkeeper had made a tremendous save or a penalty in a shootout, the final penalty had hit the crossbar, come back out, bounced, bounced out and away, goalkeeper goes away and celebrates, ball keeps bouncing and then trickles back over the line and counts. And the referee at the time gave the goal, a successful penalty to Boulogne, it counted, and on they went. Though strictly under the rules as they were in 1986, it shouldn't have counted. But of course, the rules as they were in 1986, probably Carlos should have been sent off for coming out of his area during the game and bringing Boulogne down. You would like to think in 2020 that would result in an automatic red card, as it should have done then. Yeah, well, Carlos said in that interview, I mentioned that now there are the the rules are different, so I would have done something different, probably. Um, you know, pressure, as I say, does funny things to uh, people, and the the will to win is so big. And you have to remember both those. Well, I suppose it was a bit different with France. It won the the European Championship after that disappointment in '82 in the semi final against West Germany. But Brazil, for them, going into that game off the back of a hugely traumatic tournament in '82 when. They won the hearts of everyone with the way they played football, but lost 3-2 to Italy, Paolo Rossi hat-trick. And uh, again, that defeat in 86, the fact Brazil did not win either of those tournaments had a major impact on the future and the way uh, they went about their football after that. We mentioned previously talking about 1990 and how disappointing Brazil were then. They went for destroyers in midfield, you know, played a totally different brand of football over the next 30 years almost to try and adapt and win you know Tim Vickery on ESPN had a good article again talking about how Dunga had always said that 82 team they were specialists in losing but again Vickery points out they've been showing classic World Cup matches in um, Brazil they showed all the wins of course but they've also shown all five games from 1982. The current Brazil coach is apparently a fan of that team, so hopefully we'll uh, see a lot more of um, that Brazil team, or that style of play, rather, in the future. Yeah, but the fact is, I know they've won the World Cup twice since then, but for me, that was the last great Brazil team because they played magnificent football. They basically lived up to the name, if you like. They were Brazil. Like that 82 team, and you had Zico, who scored some absolutely tremendous goals in both tournaments. Kareka scored absolute belters, particularly one against uh, Northern Ireland in 86. It was a magnificent team, and just an absolute epic that saw them lose out in the end in that quarterfinal to France, which is a, a game we'll always remember. They've lost France, lost to France twice in, uh, since that in World Cups, the 98 final and the 2006 quarterfinal as well, so uh, maybe it left a... A trace, a scar as well that Brazil have never recovered from. Yeah, and Brazil had to wait 1994 to win the uh, the World Cup after 1970. So it was a bit of a, a while, like, and a wait uh, for the uh, Brazilian fans to uh, to get the World Cup. Now the retro football continues next weekend. TG Cahar have got World Cup gold Friday night at 7:30. Ireland against the Netherlands, which was the final group game in 1990. They're skipping 
Ireland against Egypt, which, spoiler alert, finished nil-nil. And the following morning, they have the Collingwood Cup final, by the way. Uh, quite an epic in that. That's 10.30 Saturday morning. Uh, BBC's World Cup Rewind on Saturday features England against West Germany in the semi-final of 1990, the 1974 final, amongst other games. And having launched their... Uh, football Classics last Saturday night, ITV have got the 1979 FA Cup final between Arsenal and Manchester United coming up next weekend. But they started off last Saturday with one of the greatest FA Cup finals ever, 1987, Coventry 3, Tottenham 2, decided by a Gary Mabbott own goal. Spurs ahead after 110 seconds through Clive Allen. Dave Bennett equalised for Coventry. Then a combination of Mabbott and Kilkline. Some feel that it's Mabbott's goal and he scored at both ends. And of course, that brilliant diving Heather by Houchen. And I have to say, if you're going to start off a series like that, there is no better game with which to kick it off. Yeah, what a game. It's truly one of the best FA Cup finals, especially in the 80s, but maybe... Also, if we take into consideration 60s and 70s, it it will be up there in the top five, probably. And it's also because you had Coventry in the final, because Tottenham had that pedigree. They won the title, they won the cup before that. And for Coventry, it was something absolutely fantastic and amazing. And you go to that final and you beat the favourites. And how you do it, you can see it after two minutes. So probably you would be thinking, ah, it's not our day. But that's the beauty of it. That's what used to be so important about the FA Cup. And that's why people even outside of England loved it so much, because you could have all those teams like Sunderland and Southampton in the 70s winning the final, and you could have Coventry and next year Wimbledon winning it against Tottenham and Liverpool respectively. So that game is truly one of the best of the decade. And even though sometimes we hear a lot of bad things, and these are true, about the situation in English football, especially with hooliganism and all that. But on the pitch, there were fantastic FA Cup finals because that Coventry Tottenham was a game that proved to be rather another great game. And it wasn't an exception if you take other Cup finals into consideration, especially to Liverpool-Everton finals. And as well as that, in the same era, the League Cup the previous year... Oxford had beaten Queen's Park Rangers that. We referenced that in our last programme at the weekend because Michael Robinson played in that. Then, 88, you'd Luton beating Arsenal 3-2. So in something like a 25, 26-month period, you'd Coventry, Wimbledon, Oxford and Luton winning Wembley Cup finals when it was a massive deal. And I have to say, it was the first time I'd ever heard the ITV commentary. In my house, we finally had ITV in the following year when Luton had won the League Cup. And that final win over Arsenal and Coventry Tottenham is the most excited I've ever heard Brian Moore. Because, again, it was more than the goals. There were loads of goals, but it could have been 4 all or 5 all. There was so much incident. It was a magnificent cup final and two brilliant teams. Yeah, and unfortunately, of course... Coventry didn't have a chance to play in Europe after winning the Cup and all the clubs who won the League Cup in those years couldn't do it because of the ban on English clubs. So that's the dark side of it. There was something else there, especially on the pitch, of course. And Coventry was one of the sides that provided it in that particular year. Yeah, and obviously Coventry finished sixth two seasons later. And unfortunately, that Tottenham team pretty much broke up because of the lack of European football. Richard Goff ended up going back up to Scotland with Rangers, Chris Waddle to Marseille, Glenn Hoddle to Monaco, Ozzy Ardiles went back home as well. And a, a snapshot of an interesting era of English football. But the cup finals and a lot of the league games back then, actually, they were full belt and they were, they were great spectacles. Uh, thank you to Stefan Jorni, Mark Rodden and Dimitro Zulai. As usual, if you have a chance, please like us. Please, please like us and rate us and all the usual. And until next time, it is goodbye. <laughs>